Opening your Bibles with me to Psalm 62. And tonight, I want us to look at Psalm 62, and I, and I don't necessarily have points that I'm going to give you, but I just want to walk through the psalm with you, make some observations, <clears throat> and hopefully we will walk away encouraged. And the book of Psalms is so interesting because it contains psalms that cover a wide variety of topics. And so we've got some psalms that are, are very comforting to the people who are hurting, and they are commonly gone to when, when you go visit someone in the hospital or if somebody's on their deathbed, you'll read these certain psalms. Or perhaps there's psalms that are uh, very encouraging uh, when you are feeling excited about something, when you are ready to, to take on something new. There are psalms that build us up and encourage us. There are psalms that challenge us. And then there are psalms that talk about dashing babies against a stone and I'll let Josh Womble answer those questions at some point in the future. But there's such a wide variety of, of topics covered in the Psalms. And I don't, I don't read the Psalms every day. It's, it's a good practice to try and read a Psalm every day. Uh, it's not a whole lot to add to your daily Bible reading if you're already doing that. Uh, but I like to do it from time to time, and I come back. And one of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 62. And... What I, what I like to do when I, when I read a psalm is I like to try and figure out the history behind the psalm. Why was it written? Who was it written or who wrote it? And what was the, what was the circumstances around it being written? Because sometimes <clears throat> those little details give us a whole lot of insight about the heart of what's being said in the psalm. And as I did that with Psalm 62, I found very little. We do know from the subscript up here uh, that this is to the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. So this is written by David. We don't know necessarily when it was written. We don't have an exact date. We don't know what the circumstances were around when he was writing this. But as, as I read the psalm over and over again, it's only 12 verses, not very long, I started to think that perhaps we don't need all that context for this psalm to really speak to us. For this psalm to really affect our hearts. So I want us to read it together. I'll read it uh, starting in verse 1, and then we'll walk back through and, and make some points of application. Psalm 62, beginning in verse 1. It says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rest my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour, your, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter 
than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. An interesting psalm. Perhaps you're familiar with this psalm. Perhaps verses 1 and 2 are are popular. Perhaps you've heard verses 5 through uh, 8 before. Those are very popular verses. Maybe you have them even underlined in your Bible. But as I thought about this psalm and as I read it over and over again, one of the things that you will notice in this psalm is that there is no prayer offered up to God in the psalm. Oftentimes, when we read the Psalms, you will see that there is a section in the Psalm where it seems as if the the one who is writing is offering up a prayer to God. We don't find that here. We don't find a petition to God for a certain circumstance or for a certain thing that is happening in the life of the author, David, in this instance. And we also don't know exactly if, if things are going well in David's life or if things are not going well in David's life. We don't know if this is a time of triumph or if this is a time of defeat. But all the same, there's still a lot we can learn from this psalm. He begins with verses one and two talking about God and reminding himself of his dependence upon God. Look Look back at verse one with me. He says, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. I think in verse one, when we, take, when we think about God, our, our, when we think about our soul waiting in silence, that's a difficult concept for some of us to grasp. Because I don't think there's a whole lot of us that spend a whole lot of time in silence. There are a lot of things in our lives and in our world that serve as a constant distraction. I recognize it in my own life. I get to work, I'm on a computer. I have a computer in front of me all day. I take a break from work, I pull my phone out of my pocket and I get on you know, Twitter or something and I see what's happening on Twitter. Or I take a break from that and I go back to work. Or I take a break from that and I sit down in front of the TV. Or I come home and then I have my kids and they're wanting to play, wanting to do things and then they go to bed and then my wife is wanting to maybe watch a show together or we'll talk about something or, or do whatever but I find that there are very, very, very few moments in the day where where I actually sit in silence. I'm not being influenced by anything. I'm just alone with my thoughts. And I think all of us, if we were honest, would probably feel the same way. There's not a whole lot of time where we just sit and be quiet and wait on the Lord. Now, hopefully... We begin to learn how to do that, and we begin to see that happening as we're in our Bible, because we know that the Bible is is where God speaks to us. But yet, David says here in verse one, he says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. He says alone in verse one. If you look at verse two, he says, he alone is my rock and my salvation. He repeats this alone twice. And it's important that we notice this. Some of these small details may seem to go unnoticed when you just read through it, but it's important that he says, for God alone my soul waits in silence. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. 
Because we have to understand that there is nothing else that can take the place of what God alone can do. There are a lot of things that we can wait in silence for, but they will not provide salvation. You see, here's the key reason why his, his soul is waiting for God alone. Because the second part of verse one says, from him comes my salvation. Um, Josh has influenced me in a lot of ways since I've been here at Fairdale. And one of them is I now own a pair of Adidas Ultra Boosts based on his influence. And if you don't know anything about shoes, uh, you probably think a typical pair of shoes, 40, 50, 60 bucks, these are $180. And so you would think, and, and the very first time that I met Josh, I thought, dude, that is ridiculous. No, I'm never doing that. But then he says, hey, I've got this guy. And he can get us 50% off. That's 90 bucks. That's still a little expensive, but a little more palatable than 180. So anyway, I'm like, all right, dude, I'm doing it. I'm going to get me a cool pair of Ultra Boosts. I'm going to be, you know, fit. I'm going to be in with, with all the cool kids. But anyway, we have to rely on that guy to get us his discount. And he does things at his own pace. So, you know, we can't just order these shoes whenever we want. We have to rely on him to get us that discount for us to get the shoes. And so there's this idea of waiting for someone who's, who's providing something for us. We are at their mercy. And David understands that same concept here, and he says, my, uh, for God alone my soul waits in silence because it's from him that my salvation comes. When we understand that our salvation comes from nowhere else except God alone, that means there is no one or nothing else that is worth waiting on. Verse two, he says, he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. God is referred to as a rock numerous times throughout the scripture. And when we think about God being our rock, we think about the place of safety for us, a place that is, that is not movable. It does not change. This is what God is. God is who he says he is. God does not change he never will start to become something that he was never already. God is, is that solid foundation. Just as Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, those who are, who are wise will build their house on the foundation of the rock. And he says, that's my teaching. Right? But those who are fools are gonna build their foundation on the sand. And we all know that the storm is gonna come, the waters are gonna come, and it's gonna wipe it out. But if your foundation is on the word of God or the words of Jesus, as he said, it will be like that strong foundation. You see, David understands that his salvation comes from God, so I will wait on God. I will quiet my soul. I will listen to what he has to say alone because he is my rock and he is my salvation and he is my fortress. And when we understand this, at the end of verse two, he says, I shall not be greatly shaken. This is exactly what Josh was talking about this morning. In the midst of, of an, a, a report of cancer, that would shake us, but it would not greatly shake us. It would not overthrow us. It would not completely defeat us. It would shake us for sure. But if God is our rock, if our soul is waiting quietly for him, y'all, he is our fortress. 
He is our rock. He is our salvation. We will not be greatly shaken. Now, in verse three, the tune of the, of the psalm changes. And he moves into talking about people who are attacking him. He says in verse three, how long will you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So now David begins talking about the the circumstances in his life. Now again, we don't know exactly what circumstances he's referring to, but it seems in some way, shape, or form that he is being attacked, that evildoers are trying to do him harm. And he says here um, that their only plan is to thrust him down from his high position because they take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. But what's interesting about the way that he structures the psalm here is he does not start with those who are attacking him. He starts with God. He starts the psalm by reminding himself of who God is. God is his salvation. God is his rock. God is his refuge. And I want to encourage you tonight that perhaps you are in the midst of of difficult things. You are going through some hardship in life. I want to encourage you that before you come to God and ask for help with your circumstances, before you come to God and ask for whatever it is that you feel that you need, come to God first and remind yourself of what he has told you about himself. Remind yourself of who God is and what he is like. Remind yourself that he is your salvation. Despite what circumstances may be trying to tell you, remind yourself that he is your rock, that he is your fortress. See, it's important that we understand God never changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when we're in the midst of hardship, when we're in the midst of difficulty, it can be easy to forget that. But David here, as he's, as he's writing this psalm, he begins by reminding himself, reminding his own soul to wait patiently for the Lord. He reminds himself who the Lord is. He knows that the Lord is greater than those who are attacking a man to batter him. And then, after that, he goes back into this talking about God and what's true about him. So notice the pattern. Remind yourself about God and who he is. Bring to him the things that you need or the things that you are upset about. And then, remind yourself again about the truth of God. But let's look at verses uh, five and following. And he begins to repeat what we've already read in verses one and two. He says, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. Now notice there's one difference. In verse one, he says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. He's saying that my soul is in the process of waiting in silence for God. But in verse five, it changes to a command. He says, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. He's reminding himself of the need to wait in silence for God alone. Seems that in verse one, he said 
my soul is doing this. But in verse five, he's reminding, of him, he's reminding himself of the need for his soul to do this. I need my soul to wait in silence. And then again, he says, for my hope is from him. When we understand that our only hope and our only salvation is from God and God alone, he is the only one worth waiting in silence for. Waiting in silence for anything else will disappoint. It will let you down. It will fall short. God will not. Verse six, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. He's restating again, verse two, as he's already reminded himself of this truth, he's reminding himself again. Again, he's stating only. Verse five, he says, for God alone, my soul, wait in silence. Verse six, he only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. And then in verse seven, he continues. He said, on God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. It's just a restatement again of verses one and five. But do you understand the importance of understanding who God is? Understanding his character, understanding what he is like, so important for us to know. Because as we all know, life is gonna ebb and flow. There's gonna be good times and there's gonna be bad times. There's gonna be triumphant times and there's gonna be uh, times of defeat. Perhaps in the next month or so after this baby is born and Samantha and I are lacking a lot of sleep, we're gonna feel like life is in a, a period of defeat. But we know it'll be glorious. We know it'll be worth it. The last two definitely have been. We know this one will be as well. But even in the ebb and flow of life, in the up and down, in the good and the bad, we need to, as people of God, be reminded of who God is. He is a rock. He is our salvation. He is a mighty rock. He is a refuge for us. And now verse eight gets really, really interesting. He says, trust in him at all times, O people. So now it seems as if David's not talking to himself. Now he begins talking to a congregation. He's talking to multiple people. And he says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Now, he has said multiple times now that God is a refuge for us. I hope that you're getting this point. Maybe you're underlining all the times where he has said these things, that God is a rock, God is our salvation, God is our fortress, God is a refuge for us. But in verse eight, he says, trust in him at all times. All is a very interesting word. I did grow up in church and I had a youth pastor that would tell me, <clears throat> he said, all means all and that's all that all means. And that was a very helpful definition. <clears throat> but it's true. All is everything. And so when, when David here says, trust in him at all times. That truly means all times. We can trust in him when we get that bad diagnosis. We can trust in him when we are celebrating the birth of our child. We can trust in him when we've lost our job. We can trust in him when the house is being foreclosed on. 
We can trust in him when that loved one's being laid to rest. David says, trust in him at all times. Don't ever think that there is a time in your life where God cannot be trusted, where God cannot be relied upon, where he fails to be your rock or where he fails to be your refuge or your salvation. But notice what he tells us to do at all times. Trust in him. Trust in him at all times. Church, it's easy to lose trust in people. If anybody has ever done you wrong, you immediately just want to say, I'm not going to trust that person anymore. I'm done. Got hurt too much. I got burned. Not going to let that happen again. So we close ourselves off. It's easy for us to interpret our circumstances as if, in the situation of Job, God is against us. Why would God ever let these things happen to us? We're tempted to think this sometimes. David says, we can trust him at all times. Not just that we can, but he's telling us that we need to. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour your heart out before him. Not only is he trustworthy, we can trust him with the cares and concerns of our heart. Just to pour your heart out before him. Church, I know that there are many times when our hearts weigh us down. There are many times, perhaps even with some of the the prayer concerns that were raised tonight, your hearts are heavy tonight. And if not, They will be at some point in the future. There will be things that happen to us outside of our control that just weigh our hearts down. And David is saying to us, he's reminding us that we can pour our hearts out before God. And let me just remind you that everything is is naked and exposed before him anyway. He's aware of, of every bit of pain that you feel. He's aware of every bit of anxiety that you are experiencing. He knows all of it. And so David is telling us here, not only can we trust in him at all times, but he says, people, pour your heart out before him. God can handle the cares and concerns of your hearts. God can handle all of the things that weigh you down. You can pour it out on him and it will not overwhelm him. He will not turn his back. He will not have enough of it. He will accept it. He is willing to listen at all times. Because he is a refuge for us. A refuge is a safe place. It's a place of of safety that we can go to. I have some friends that live in Oklahoma. And if you're aware of the Midwest, you know that tornadoes are a real threat there. And so they have designated safe places where you can go. If you don't have a cellar in your house or you can get underground, you need a place to go where you can be safe from the threat of a tornado. We would understand that as a place of refuge, a place where you can go for safety in the midst of chaos. David is reminding us here in the psalm that God is that for his people. God is a refuge for us. We are to trust in him at all times. We are to pour our hearts out before him and to always be reminded that he is a safe place for us. Then we get to verse nine and 10. 
He says, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. In verses 9 and 10, he's comparing these things to the trustworthiness of God. He says in verse 8 that we can trust him at all times, that we can pour out our hearts before him. And in verse 9, he tells us, those of low estate, okay, people that we don't think too highly of, they're but a breath. Okay, we, don't, we don't think much about a breath because it's nothing of value. He says in ver- uh, the second part of that verse, those of high estate are a delusion. They don't last. They may come. People of, of high status, they may come and be around for a while, but they don't last. There's no staying power. He says in the balances, they go up, and they're both lighter than a breath. He says don't put your hope in people. They will disappoint. Verse 10, put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hope on robbery. Those who are profiting from unjust gain, says, don't put your hope in that because God will judge that. God will destroy that. And then he says, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. Even if you come into riches, wealth in an honorable way, he says, don't put your hope in that. That will disappoint. That will fall short. Then we get to verse 11. And I have this underlined in my Bible. This is fantastic. He says, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Now, why do I love this so much? Because the first probably 10 times I read it, I have no idea what in the world is meant. And I picked up my handy commentary of Charles Spurgeon, and I read his thoughts on this. And this is what he said. Verse 11, it says, God hath spoken once. So immutable is God that he need not speak twice as though he had changed. So infallible that one utterance suffices for he cannot err. So omnipotent that his solitary word achieves all its designs. We speak often and say nothing. God speaks once and utters eternal verities. All our speaking may yet end in sound, but he speaks, and it is done. He commands, and it stands fast. God does not need to speak more than one time. I think about creation. And when God spoke things into existence, they were there. He did not have to repeat himself. He did not have to say it again a second time. He speaks, it is there. It is true, and it will never change. But then he says, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. Spurgeon says that we need to always be reminded and to be hearing again and again and again the things that God has said. How true that is. God has spoken to us in the Bible. We have here the revelation of himself to us. And every time we read it, we are hearing what God has spoken. And the reality is, 
David would not know all of the things that he's already penned were it not that he's heard what God has said. And that's what I'm encouraging all of us with tonight. To be a Christian throughout a long life means there's going to be a lot of ups and downs. There's going to be some good times. There's going to be some hard times. And if we are going to get through all of it, if we are going to remain faithful to God through all of it, we need to keep our eyes fixed on what God has said. We need to know the truth about what God has revealed about himself. He says, once God has spoken, that was sufficient. That was all he needed to say. Twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. What's interesting here is that he says in verse 11 and 12 that power belongs to God and that steadfast love belongs to him as well. These are two things that we see in the life of Jesus. We see that Jesus has power, but Jesus also has steadfast love. Jesus has power in that, think about the, the story about the, him with the disciples on the boat when the waves are crashing in and they're freaking out and Jesus is asleep in the bottom of the boat and they wake him up thinking that they're gonna die and Jesus simply says, be still. And creation obeys. We think about the, the story of of Lazarus, which I talked about last week as I was preaching, and how Jesus comes to the tomb where Lazarus has been dead for four days, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And a dead man comes walking out of the tomb. We hear the words of Jesus saying on the cross with the, the thief who is defending Jesus. He says, we are dying justly, but he is innocent. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Y'all, Jesus has power, but he does not use it for his own personal gain. He uses it for our gain. Jesus laid his power down at the cross so that you and I could be beneficiaries of that power. And that's what steadfast love is. You see, God could use his power to crush us. We are sinful We don't deserve mercy, grace, or anything from God. But yet he is also filled with steadfast love. He loves his creation. He loves people that he has created in his image. And we see in the life of Jesus both that power that belongs to him, but also that steadfast love. And church, never forget that God has both power and steadfast love And he has used both of them to serve us. That's the God that David says in verse one, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. My salvation is from him. Church, when you understand where your salvation comes from, you will understand that he is absolutely worth waiting on. We don't like to wait for things. That's why Amazon now has next day delivery. If you have Amazon Prime, it's insane. We don't like to wait. But sometimes we have to. And I'm here to tell you tonight that God is the only one 
worth waiting on. He's worth it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the encouraging words from Psalm 62. And I don't know where everyone in this room is at right now, what they're dealing with, what they're struggling with, but I pray that they would read Psalm 62. They would know without a doubt that God is our rock. God is our refuge. He is our strong fortress. From you and you alone comes our salvation. God, we thank you for Jesus. And we see so clearly in him the power which belongs to you and the steadfast love which belongs to you. We thank you, God, that you have used both your power and your steadfast love, not to your advantage, but to ours. Your son laid down his life so that we may live. God, we thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.